Hey everybody, I'm Logan Camden. I'm Carson Brabber. And this is Nerd Sesh. No! Oh my God, how could he do that? Are you on Donate What? Charles Darwin. All right, well... Today, Logan, as the NBA season has continued to pick up, inevitably, some pretty pressing questions have arisen in our minds. So today, we are going to ask eight of those questions, and we are going to answer eight of those questions. So let's start with this one. Which Western Conference team should be most excited right now? Well, honestly, if I had to pick one, I'd go with the Los Angeles Lakers because that's kind of boring. I opted not to. I'm actually going to go with the Utah Jazz, Carson. And the reason I say that is uh, I feel like most people, if they were going to pick a team that was going to be the odd team out from last year that was going to suffer a major severe drop-off, it would have been Utah. But uh, this season, uh, everything has pretty much gone right for them. Now, they got uh, Boyan Bogdanovich back healthy. He has struggled in his return this season. He's shooting under 40% from the field and deep. But he's gone over 17 in his last three games. He's been a bright spot. Mike Conley is not having those same issues that he suffered with last year. He's up near 17 points per game and six assists per game um, instead of 14 and four like he was last year. Uh, this team is still as competent as they were last season defensively. They're seventh in defensive rating this season. They're fifth and least assists allowed, and they close out on shooters extremely well. They've just got a they've got a great defensive rotation uh, led by one of the best defensive players in basketball in Rudy Gobert. They're third and least three-pointers allowed and sixth uh, best in the league at opponents. Three-point percentage. The Jazz are just Honestly, Carson, one of the most well-rounded teams in the NBA, and that's why I say that should be excited. Nothing really catastrophic happened in the offseason. The relationship between Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell um, is still solid because of all the turmoil we heard from them last season. Uh, the Jazz just haven't suffered a dramatic drop-off, and I think there's value in that. And again, I think they are the most well-rounded team in the Western Conference in any given game. I think they could go toe-to-toe with anybody. Yeah, this is interesting to me because I never really got the Jazz skepticism. I really considered having them as my five seed in my preseason predictions. I ended up with them being sixth, but I think that this was always going to be largely contingent upon can Mike Conley adjust to a little bit more of an off-ball role. And up to this point, I think that he has done that relatively well. He's shooting 45% on three catch-and-shoot threes a game and still has the ball in his hands a lot, is still creating, but is not having the same issues that he did last year when really just everything went wrong for him. He wasn't even knocking down his signature floaters. He just looked out of rhythm and clearly not in peak form for that entire season. And this is an incredibly talented team. This is, to me, really the full realization of the potential of this squad where they're a top 10 team on both ends. Clarkson is going crazy. The depth, I think, is improved from last season when you have the addition of a guy like Derek Favors. And this team is absolutely playing really high-level basketball right now. And We'll see what their ceiling is come playoff times. Do I expect them to win a playoff series? I do not, but I would not be shocked because right now we have seen a bunch of teams in the West are in flux. The Nuggets, the Mavs, some of the teams that maybe would have been considered to be in that higher tier have sputtered and shown some flaws, and maybe the Jazz do end up being the strongest out of that group. But I absolutely agree that they have cause for excitement. The only reason that I maybe wouldn't put them at the top of my list is we kind of know what they are. And as I said, this is similar to my expectations for them coming into this year, and Without a dramatic personnel change, which they did not have, without somebody on this team taking a really significant leap, their ceiling is probably going to be similar to what has been the past couple years, which is maybe they win a playoff series, but they're probably not going to get all the way to the conference finals, certainly beyond that. So for this one, I have selected two teams that I do not think are as impressive as the Jazz, but when I talk about excitement relative to expectations, I think that they have a reason to really be excited with what their teams have done. So I'll go one by one here because I did kind of cheat and choose two for this one. But first, I have the Golden State Warriors, which I think 
are a really interesting team to talk about here because this really depends on when your expectations are originating from and what your expectations were. Because I think a lot of people preseason expected the Warriors to be a solid playoff team or maybe even more than that. And then they very quickly appeared to be in desperation mode after those first couple games in which they looked disastrous. And now here they are, they're sitting at 7-6. They have really incredible resilience as a team where they've had two of the best comeback victories of the season against both LA teams. Sometimes they do look really bad, which is why it's interesting that I talk about people being so excited, but at other times they look incredible. And I do think that the Draymond return is obviously hugely significant because since he came back, they're a top 12 defense in basketball, whereas before that they were really getting run out of the gym by a lot of teams on that end. And I think that also Kelly Oubre is finding his own a little bit more. Obviously, I'm not particularly satisfied with his play on the season as a whole, but over the past three games, he's eight of 23 from deep. That's 35%. And I also think that We've just seen this team find itself a little bit more. The second unit is really clicking. Eric Paschal, who was not playing exceptionally well at the start of the year, is killing people right now and is kind of just running the show with the second unit as a scorer and is incredibly difficult to stop and is finding great success there. And I also think when I talk about them finding themselves, previously they really needed a form of go-to offense. It was either Steph goes absolutely crazy or we're probably going to struggle. And now with Draymond firmly in the rotation, this past game against... The Lakers, they really turned to the Steph Draymond pick and roll late, and I think we need to see more of that just because it punishes teams who try to double Steph, obviously, and if they don't double Steph, then you have Steph, obviously, in more one-on-one -on -one situations in space, and you also maximize Draymond's offensive value because off the short roll, he has been maybe the best decision maker in basketball for a very long time. He can still kill people with that floater or, of course, find the open shooter, so Right now, that's what this offense is going to hinge on. It's going to be, can guys knock down shots? That's been the question, and it will remain the question. They are currently, I believe, 20th in three-point percentage. That's not great, but maybe it's good enough if Steph can continue to carry this kind of load, if Wiggins can continue to create for himself, if Draymond can play at the level he has, because right now every single team is single, singularly dedicated to trying to stop Steph Curry, and I do think that opens up a lot of avenues for other guys, and recently guys have been taking advantage of that, and this team has been playing better. Do you think Steph has to play at an MVP level to get this team to the playoffs? I do, because this still isn't a great roster, and it is sort of a ragtag group, and so although they are overperforming and rounding into form a little bit more, Steph drives everything, and if Steph were not here, I think we know what this team would look like, because it's not just his production, it's his gravity, it's, it's the spacing, it's the doubles that he demands, all these things that open up lanes for other guys, because without that, if it were even a Trey Young or somebody who didn't use their off-ball gravity in that same way, this team would not be nearly what they are. Although... Again, the improvement defensively has been impressive. So that's why I have the Warriors there. I don't think their ceiling is tremendously high, but compared to how they looked in the first couple games, they have come a long way. My second team, I would say, has even less of a ceiling, but this is really more about the future, and that is the San Antonio Spurs, who we've talked about a little bit previously, but this team is not overachieving at this point, in my opinion. I think that they're just a good basketball team. And although that is the case, although I do think that they will be in the play-in, Obviously, we're not expecting any kind of contention from them this year. So to me, it's really looking at the young guys and how they project going forward. Lonnie Walker, to me, is the most tantalizing of these guys. He has really impressive creation off the dribble, change of pace into bursts. He attack closeouts and then off the ball, catch and shoot threes. He has length impact the game defensively. Keldon Johnson, a really good off ball mover, just a smart player. He attacks closeouts. He has some nice change of pace as well and is a good straight line driver. A 38% three-point shooter, fights on the glass good decision maker as far as setting up others. 
just a really winning basketball player, which I think is great for this team. And then DeJounte Murray also is a different player than what we've seen previously. And that includes when he was signed to the four-year $64 million extension. He's a significantly better offensive player than he was at that point. I think that he much better understands his offensive game, how to change pace, how to effectively get to the rim, how to finish when he gets there. And I also think he can be effective off the ball. He's more willing to take threes now. And he's always been a good playmaker, but he's whipping passes. And he's always been a great defender. And that has not changed. So what I really like about this core is these are guys who you not who you were not really picking to be stars, obviously. You got them 18th in the draft for Walker and then 29th for both Johnson and Murray. But considering their age, considering that Walker's 22, Johnson is 21, Murray is 24, they're really mature in their approach to the game. They all care about defense, and I think that they are all fundamentally smart winning players. So yes, right now, there are some other guys who are helping make this success possible as well. LaMarcus and DeMar being a little more open to space in the floor, that matters. When Derek White returns, I think the Spurs will go nine deep with really good players. So that's all impressive. But to me, what's far more important than maybe them sneaking in to the 10 seed and then losing in the first round of the play-in or losing in the first round of the playoffs, which I really think is still too much to ask of this roster, it's that you have guys who can be important to this team's success down the road. And that was far from certain this past year when Murray didn't look like he had progressed that much last season coming off of obviously a serious injury. And Johnson could barely get on the floor. Walker couldn't consistently get on the floor. These are real winning players now. And that is great for this team to see. No, you hit this right on the head, Carson. And the Spurs were honestly the second team that I was going to go with because I didn't expect them to be uh, anywhere near this record-wise at the start of the year. I think I picked them to be one of the bottom five team uh, teams in the West. But uh, as you mentioned, DeMar DeRozan stretching the floor has been imperative to what this offense is running. And then I'm so glad you brought up Kelvin Johnson. He is genuinely one of my favorite players just to watch. Like, he's one of the best off-ball movers in the game. Like, when the Spurs are running offense... Kelvin's not just bursting from three-point line to three-point line. It's cuts off of screens. It's cuts off of guys handling the rock in the middle of the floor so he can get open in the mid-range corner. Like, he just, he's always moving, and it's an underrated aspect of an offense because he may not always be getting the buckets, but he's always opening up something for somebody else. Is Keldon, to you, the most promising guy out of this young trio? Yeah, I know you said Lonnie Walker, and I think there's a little more shot-making there, but just as you said... It just means more to winning basketball, what Keldon does off the ball, because so many guys want to get lazy and just sit on the hash or sit in the corner, and uh, there's just value in what that guy can open up for you for all the other guys on the floor. I think you're probably right. Johnson impacts every phase of the game, defensively, off ball. He's a playmaker. He's going to fight on the glass, and all of that really matters. I do think, though, right now, I may think that Walker is the most intriguing. You may think that Keldon Johnson is the most important long-term winning. DeJounte Murray is the best player out of this bunch, in my opinion, right now. And I have not been a big Murray guy historically, but as I said, he's a completely different player. So maybe he doesn't have as far to go, but what he is right now is a really good all-around basketball player. So huge progress from the Spurs. I don't think that they had much to be optimistic about at all before this season. And now we're talking about them as being one of the teams with the best cause for optimism that there is. So let's flip this on this head now and get negative for a second. Which Eastern Conference team should be most concerned right now? I think it's got to be the Washington Wizards, Carson. And the reason I say that is, well, one, they're sitting at three and eight and they're 28th in defensive rating, but Washington has zero flexibility in the coming years because of how they have managed their money. They have two of the biggest contracts in basketball in Russell Westbrook and Bradley Beal. And the Wizards, the, Wizards, the biggest issue from this offseason, they dropped this massive bag for Davis Bertans, and he's just not played well this season. He hasn't shot well. When your one goal in an offense is to be spot up and catch and shoot 
and you're not doing that, he's shooting 37% from the field and 36% from deep, then you have no value in an offense. So uh, I'm concerned salary cap-wise. And then an even bigger issue, I don't think they're using their young talent right, Carson. And this was a concern of mine. I, I really like the Denny of Hop pickup in the draft. I still think he's one of the most talented players out of that draft. But when he's not being utilized correctly in this offense, uh, I just... They, they have to utilize him differently. With Russell Westbrook and Bradley Beal dominating so many of the on-ball possessions, Denny has been relegated to basically just a spot-up shooter. And it's not that Denny's bad in that role. He's pretty good. He's got a great stroke, but he needs to be utilized more than just a cutter and a spot-up shooter. When he can play make, you're just capping out his abilities. He can't grow as a player along these guys. And that also brings in that Roy Hachimura really hasn't been getting any touches because there just isn't, there's no growth for these young guys because of how their offense runs. Granted, Bradley Beal has been getting buckets this season, and that's good and well, but it's just not a team effort. I'm starting to think, Carson, that I'm hopping onto your wagon with this take, but it's the Russell Westbrook effect. Yeah, this team is not good. So I think if they do have good reason for concern there, because whatever optimism you had about Westbrook and Beal single-handedly carrying you to the playoffs— that's not going to happen. Maybe the play-in, but I certainly don't think that that's a guarantee at this point. This is a fundamentally flawed team that cannot get a stop for the life of them, that is still relatively free-flowing offensively, that still has dudes who can knock down shots, but I think you're right about some of the misutilization of the personnel. I think that Denny, and obviously putting Denny in spots to be himself as a rookie is not the top priority. Their top priority is to win basketball games, but they're not doing that regardless right now. But yeah, nobody on this team has been impressive or lived up to my expectations. Troy Brown, a guy who I was optimistic about, has really been a non-factor for this team. Russ has been atrocious, utterly atrocious when he's out there on the floor. Rui is fine. He doesn't look like he's really progressed from last season when I hoped that he had a little bit earlier on in his first couple games to start this year. Thomas Bryant, we've touched on his defensive deficiencies. So this team has every reason to be concerned. They're first in pace right now for a team this bad defensively. Do you think that they should slow down or should they continue doing what they're doing? I think they have to run and gun because if they don't, what is their strength as a team? That is the system that brought them to be relatively competitive last season. And I think that it is still complementary to their personnel. At this point, they're sixth in offensive rating. They're scoring 120 points a game and they're three and eight. And I think that that just speaks to the other side of the ball, which they cannot fix. So the Wizards to me are an excellent candidate. I ended up not going with them because they are almost, to me, a write-off at this point and that I have given up on them already. So I stuck with teams that I think maybe should be concerned but have a realistic path to figure it out. So first I thought about the Raptors just because of obviously their brutal start to the season. But with three straight wins, I think they'll be fine. The offense is flowing and the defense isn't what it was last year. And they're not going to be the team that they were last year. But will they be a playoff team? Absolutely, I think so. There's too much talent here. Too many smart winning basketball players. So I think they'll be okay. They just caught a couple of tough breaks early in the season. The Heat are another team that I considered sitting at five and seven, but so much of that to me is attributable to health and just the guys that they haven't had available. Jimmy out for half their games. Bam, Hero, and Drogic have all missed two games. Avery Bradley, who looked really good to start this season, has missed five games. And it's been interesting because we've seen Hero really take on the primary ball handling duties in some of these games and excel out of the pick and roll, facilitate better. The reason that maybe it looks like he struggled statistically is he's just not getting the same kind of catch and shoot looks. 36% of his attempts are coming from deep are coming in catch and shoot situations versus 56% last year. And that's just because you don't have Jimmy. You don't have that kind of guy who demands that attention, who can create for others on the ball like that. And it's not great that they're 23rd in defensive rating right now. Maybe Jimmy doesn't single-handedly fix that, but I do think he changes a lot for this team. So, all that being said, I'm not going to go with either of those teams. 
I'm going to stick in the Southeastern Division, like you, and talk about the Atlanta Hawks, because since they beat Brooklyn convincingly in what was a really impressive game, they are 2-6 and six with wins against the 76ers, who didn't have Ben Simmons, Tobias Harris, Shake Milton, or Matisse Teibel, and the T-Wolves, who didn't have Cat. And their losses include the Cleveland Cavaliers, the Knicks, and the Hornets twice. You can't ignore that Gallinari has been out for all of that, that Bogdan has missed the last few games, and that also the bench has really struggled without Rondo out, without that kind of facilitator and calming presence there. But this offense that was firing on all cylinders is 28th in basketball over its last eight games. The good news is the defense has been third in that stretch, which is really impressive. And Capella, Hunter, and Reddish all really benefit this team there. But I think that this starts obviously from the top with Trey Young, who over his last eight games in that rough stretch is averaging 18 a game on 33% from the field, 21% from deep. He's not finishing particularly well. He's not knocking down his floaters very efficiently. He's not making threes. And I think the fact that when Trey struggles like this, this offense just absolutely goes to the seller of the league is very telling that the Hawks need to change how they play basketball. And we harped on this before the season, but I was so optimistic that when you get in more guys who can create for themselves, specifically Bogdan Bogdanovich, maybe we see a little bit less of the ball dominant, I'm going to hold on to the ball for 20 seconds per possession, every single play is going to go through me, Trey Young, that I think puts a ceiling on this team offensively, and that hasn't been the case. When Bogdan was out there and healthy, over 64% of his field goal attempts were catch and shoot threes. Those are his complete field goal attempts, not his three-point attempts. That's not how you utilize him. This is a guy who is special with the ball in his hands, who is a facilitator, who can get himself a bucket who can actually enable Trey to be a great off-ball player because Trey Young is taking one catch-and-shoot three per game. Trey Young should try to be Steph Curry on offense. Trey Young should be the kind of guy who is coming off screens off-ball all day, who is constantly moving to where the defense has to have an eye on him at all times, and instead he tries to be more James Harden-esque, where he's just going to stand there, and that's ridiculous. He's taking less. He's making much less. So I think it starts with him, but I also think they need to choose between Capella or Collins because Collins' pick and roll touches have been cut by over half. His efficiency has dropped from 82nd percentile to 24th. And he's a really gifted offensive player, but his offensive value is just diminished when you have Capella down there in the paint, taking away the area in which he likes to operate. The spacing suffers for this team as a whole, playing the two of them together. The Hawks are 24th in three-point percentage right now. That should never be the case for this team. It should be Trey Young shooters and then maybe one rim protector. And honestly, I think I would take Capella at this point because of his defensive value, because he changes this team on that end, whereas Collins, yes, he has the pick and roll threat, but Capella has the pick and roll threat. He has the floor spacing. Gallo's a better floor spacer, so he doesn't have that special value to me right now. Well, and Collins hasn't been shooting from deep well at all this season anyway. Even when he does pick and pop, he's missing most of his shots. So why are you even out there if you can't defend? Uh, Carson, I think you touched on a lot. This Hawks, this Hawks offense not only should play differently, they have the personnel to play differently. Gallinari can handle the rock. DeAndre Hunter can handle the rock. Bogdanovich can handle the rock. And to your point about Bogdanovich, while they're only using him as a catch-and-shooter this season, he is shooting 40% on catch-and-shoot three. So he has been effective in that role. But that being said... Atlanta has the personnel to run a really good offense, but as you noted, when they run down there, DeAndre Hunter could be going on a fast break. He will stop himself to get the ball to Trey Young at the top of the key. That's not how basketball works, and as good as a transition pusher as DeAndre is, as good as all of these guys are running the floor, they should just be trying to outrun everyone and use everyone as a like a Miami Heat offense because I see that potential there with their personnel. They're just not using them correctly. And I think that this is really do or die time for this Hawks team. And that sounds crazy to say in Trey Young's third year, but the first two years were throwaways. We could criticize the way that he played and say that's not sustainable to winning long term, but really it's 
not like he had many other options. He didn't have the talent around him. Now he has a bunch of gifted guys offensively. This defense is rounded into form. So there is good news, which that is Hunter is balling. He looks more comfortable handing the ball. He's shooting the lights out. I'm optimistic about Reddish, even though his offensive production has been inconsistent. I think he's giving defensive effort and he still just looks talented. And I think that that will come really into his full potential at some point. And Herder is Herder who's a good NBA player, you still get Gallo back. And this defense is miles better than last year. So they could still be really good, but there need to be some serious changes. And Trey Young is the one most responsible for that. And we'll see if they're capable of doing it. But that's why I say the Hawks would be most concerned because they have given reason to for us to think that they can be really good and that they should be really good. And they have now regressed from that point, And that is what's concerning to me. Okay. Let's talk about another couple teams out West that should probably be concerned. The Mavs and the Nuggets have not lived up to expectations up to this point. What do they need to do to get back on track? Some Carson might say that this team just needs to get healthy. They've been without Maxi Kleber, Dorian Finney-Smith, uh, Jalen Brunson, and Josh Richardson. But honestly, I think these issues go a little deeper than that. And it starts with Kristaps Porzingis. Luka Doncic desperately needs help in Dallas, and he's not been getting it from Porzingis. In the four-game sample size we've gotten from Porzingis this season, I'll give him a little credit to start off. He's a tremendous shot blocker still, two blocks per game this season. He still protects the rim. But he has not changed his shooting tendencies whatsoever. Last season, shot a career-high 43.2% of his per- percent of his shots from behind the arc. In the four games we've seen him this season, he's still shooting 41.2% of his shots from beyond the three-point line, second highest in his career to last season. And if you say that the reason he's not shooting well this season, 28.6% from behind the arc, is because he's coming off an injury, well, that's part of the problem. Availability is one of the biggest issues for any athletes. If he's not on the floor, why is he on the team? He's coming off of a right ACL injury that kept him out of the entire 2019 season. He's coming off of a left meniscus tear that he's trying to come back from now. If Porzingis, I still have faith, and I'm not saying they shouldn't have done the trade. It was a smart move at the time. It still was. Porzingis cannot be the second star for this team. Uh, Mark Cuban has got to go out there and make a move to bring in somebody more reliable, more consistent, um, that can take the pressure off of Luka. Again, we will see if that role is supplemented by Josh Richardson when he gets healthy, if he can still be that dynamic off-ball shooter and secondary playmaker. But I think Luka needs a second star, which uh, they just don't have right now. Kristaps, I think, could be the third best player on a championship-winning team, like a Chris Bosh. But Luka needs that other go-to guy who can take a little bit of pressure off of him because he is doing extraordinary things this season, and his teammates just aren't picking up the slack. This roster just isn't good enough. Yeah, and I think that that's true, obviously, throughout this past season plus. My question is, just to get back to how good they were last season— does that need to be true? Or if they are to do something beyond that, does KP need to be better? I mean, if they want to be better than last season, I think that they can totally get back to where they were last season with this exact same roster. I think this roster is better from last year. And when they do get healthy, when we see Finney Smith, Kleber, Richardson all back out on the floor, I'm sure they'll be better. But they will, I'll go on record and say this they are not going to be better than last year. They're not going to be better again. That what we saw last year is the cap of what the Dallas Mavericks can do with this current talent on their roster. Okay, that's interesting. I don't completely agree, but I sort of agree in spirit and that they're not going to be a contender with KP playing like this, and that's something that I've touched on repeatedly. 
It's the same thing we just talked about with the Hawks. As brilliant as Luka is with the ball in his hands for the entire game, you need that second creator. You need that second threat. The reason that I'm optimistic about this team and that I do think, as you touched on earlier, that a huge part of this is that they just need to get healthy. They're seventh in defensive rating right now, which is such tremendous improvement from last season. And if you look at the list of guys who are currently out, it's Finney Smith, it's THJ, it's Kleba, it's Powell, it's Richardson. And so just the guys who are supplementing those minutes, we're getting way too much James Johnson who I hate watching. He's trying to do this point forward thing all the time and just doing way too much with the ball in his hands. And I don't like him out there. We're getting way too much Wesley Awunda, who is simply not good enough to be a player in a playoff rotation. Way too much Willie Cauley-Stein, which I don't know if that even goes away. I hope that they go back to starting KP at the five because I don't like the Willie Cauley-Stein minute. So hopefully those guys' roles will get reduced when we get really the essential parts of the supporting cast back. They also just have to hit shots. They're taking the seventh most threes in basketball right now. They're making the 25th best percentage of them. So KP, it's not just that he takes so many shots from three. It's that he takes so many shots from mid-range. 19% of his shots come at the rim. That is ridiculous for a guy who's 7'3". He should be an incredible pick and roll threat because we know that he's athletic. And these are things that I've talked about for the last year plus. It just frustrates me that me pers- that they persist. But The only other thing that I could really point out and say this team actually needs to figure out besides getting healthy is Josh Richardson figuring out his role because I think that we're yet to really see him strike the balance of, okay, ball handling, maybe running the second unit a little bit and then playing off ball alongside Luka. But really, this team does just need to get healthy. Luka needs to shoot better than 28% from deep on seven plus attempts per game. That will happen. And I like that he's actually taking a couple less threes per game than last year because God knows he just is so much better when he gets in the lane than when he tries to huck up 10 step back threes a game. And so as all these things sort of work themselves out, I do think this Mavs team will be good. The defensive improvement is encouraging. And this is a team that as incredibly important as Luke is to everything they do, these role players are really good and they do a really good job. And right now they have the B team in there and we are feeling that impact. Are there any bench guys that you think deserve more minutes? Like uh, two of the rookies, Tyrell Terry, Tyler Bay, maybe Trey Burke. Any of those guys you think deserve more minutes? Well, Trey Burke's getting his fair share of run right now. I think he's averaging 12 a game, and I love what he brings offensively. As far as Terry and Bay, you know I'm a huge fan of those guys, but when this team has Kleba and Powell and THJ and Finney Smith healthy, I don't know that there's a necessity to play those guys that much. Maybe you give Bay some of the James Johnson minutes where it would be a very different role, but he brings you that potentially 3 and D value. He can be a pick-and-roll role man, all those things. That would be good, but outside of that, Tyrell Terry is the kind of guy who maybe comes in in spots and plays a Trey Burke-esque role because we know that he can do that, but they don't need him right now. I think he's the kind of guy who will have value for them long-term, but right now their role guys are just really good as is. It's just about having them actually out there on the floor. Let's talk about, unsurprisingly, because this is Nerd Sesh, the Nuggets now. So they are obviously sitting at 500, and despite Jokic's heroic efforts, they really aren't as good as we expected, particularly as I expected. So what did they need to do to really get back into the form we expected? It's funny because I told you yesterday, most fans want them to just go and trade back for Jeremy Grant, which at this point of the season, uh, yeah, it's the biggest It's the biggest need for the Denver Nuggets right now. They're 25th in defensive rating. They're 26th in assists allowed per game. They're 27th in opposing, opponent field goal percentage and opponent three-point percentage. I mean, they just don't clear out well. They just don't close out on shooters. They don't... Uh, Gary Harris and Will Barton are decent on-ball defenders, but they just... They don't pay full attention sometimes. Like P.J. Dozier, these guys are nowhere near the caliber of wing defender that uh, Paul Millsap or Jeremy Grant are. And now Millsap's role has been changed slightly a bit this season as well, which is why I think they just made a mistake. 
This offseason, they should not have gone out and got Paul Millsap. Granted, he does great things for this offense. He's still a tremendous spot-up shooter. He's a high IQ guy, but they desperately need a dominant wing defender and a bench big to protect the rim. This team is also 23rd in blocks, and when Jokic is off the floor, because Jokic is still a very good, def he's not a very good defender, but he's a competent defender. He knows where to be, at least, and there's value in that. Their two bench bigs are Jamichael Green and Isaiah Hardenstein. As we have gone on record, two of the worst defensive fives in basketball. They're just not good at protecting the rim. This team desperately just needs defensive players that can come in and contribute now, which is sadly what they lost in the offseason. And I think that when you talk about them mishandling the offseason, it was catastrophically true. And I said during free agency, priority number one and priority number two should very clearly be Jeremy Grant and Mason Plumley above Paul Millsap. They do more unique, important things for this team that drive their success, and apparently the Nuggets and Tim Connolly disagreed with me, and I think that they are clearly paying for that. And this is so strange because I remained confident in this team because of the power of just the Jokic-Murray tandem and driving great offense, and they have driven great offense, clearly. But it's so weird to just let so many role players who were of value to this team walk among the guys that we already mentioned, Malik Beasley, who obviously they traded, Torrey Craig, just letting him go to Milwaukee. Those guys were impactful rotation players, and when you lose that, you are particularly feeling it on the defensive end. However, in spite of all their issues, their starting five are still the third best five-player lineup in basketball that plays at least 100 minutes together with an offensive rating of Get this, Logan, 127.7. And this is not a fluky stat because numbers one and two are the Lakers and Clippers starting fives, and then numbers four and five are the Sixers and Bucks. So you're getting the best units in basketball, and the Nuggets starting five is right among that group. It's just their bench is not able to hold up. And of course, their team defense as a whole is not good enough. Gary Harris needs to be better. I said he was the X factor before the season, and he has been better over the past few games. But in the season as a whole, is shooting 29.6% from three. That's just not good enough. But it's not just going to come down to the personnel that they already have playing better. They need to actually go out there and get guys. You talked about Hartenstein. I might give up at this point a second-round pick to the Knicks, for example, and just go get Nerlens Noel. He doesn't even play very much for them, but a rim-protecting big of any kind would be great for this team. He's not plumly. He's not going to bring that kind of madman effort or that kind of playmaking and all the things that he did, but he's certainly better than Hartenstein in that respect. That doesn't fix everything, though, because... A lot of this team's defensive issues, as you touched on, are perimeter-centric. They are allowing teams to shoot 38.5% from three. That's the sixth-worst clip in basketball. That relates to what you were talking about, missing rotations, not closing out hard. So I actually think part of the solve to that is they should be starting Jermichael Green over Millsap because you talk about Green as a defensive big man. Obviously, that's not a role you want him in. He's easy to get moved around on there. But as more of a wing, I would certainly rather have him than Millsap. Millsap just isn't mobile at this point. Like, yeah, he can hang down there if he's parked in the post with some guy, but how often do you need him to do that? Very rarely. So I would rather have Green out there. He's more versatile. And offensively, they both offer similar value as, you know, really just floor spacers at this point. But I think Green is better at that. He's shooting 50% from deep this season, and it's a little easier for him to attack closeouts. He's just quicker, more nimble than Paul Millsap, who's 55 years old. And I want to ask a question about these young guys. Now, this is going to be a perennial question, I feel like, with Denver because they always have so much young talent. If you were the GM, do you ever cash in on these guys? And what I mean by that is trading Bull Bowl or MPJ to get a star or to just get wing depth? Because, honestly, this is a... This is an offense that could win an NBA Finals. It is They are just being let down on the defensive side. Do you think you should look to cash in and make a championship run now? Yes. 
I think that what you have in MPJ is a brilliant pure shooter of the basketball, a great cutter, a great offensive rebounder, and that's really good for this offense, but there are questions about his health. He's only played four games this season, and obviously his defensive value is still not there, and I don't think his creation off the dribble is there yet at this point. So I would say if you can go cash that in, if there were the possibility of a Jeremy Grant trade, I proposed this jokingly on another show I do, the ISO podcast. I said trade MPJ for Plumlee and Jeremy Grant because currently that makes you so much better than you are right now. And it's painful to know that this team offered Jeremy Grant the same offer sheet that the Pistons did, that all they had to give Mason Plumlee was three years, 24 million. They could have had the core that they did last year. So I think that they do do that at some point, but right now it's probably going to be smaller stuff than that. And I think that part of that is green for Millsap. They are worse uh, with Millsap on the floor than they are with him off the floor. They are much better with Green on the floor. I think that makes sense and supports the eye test. And then I also think, when I talk about perimeter defense, the defensive backcourt in this bench unit with Compazzo and Morris, those guys are nifty offensive players, but they need to find a guy who can get stops there, which is why Torrey Craig, flawed as he may have been, at least he could get you a stop in a big moment, and they just need somebody like that. So I don't know who it is that they go pick up, but they have to make changes there. Is there anything else? Do you think that it is really a big move to go get a star? Or is it just sort of, you know, refining the edges of this roster? No, I mean, I think that, honestly, with how their offense moves, Carson, I don't think they need to get another star. The way Jokic and Murray are playing right now, uh, they're one of the best duos in basketball. I'd probably go top five. I don't think you need to address anything offensively. I think all of their focus, any move that they make from here on out, should be getting a rim protector, getting multiple defenders, and... With how much depth, as you mentioned, they have at the guard rotation, on the wings, offensively. Trade one of these shooters. Trade Gary Harris. Move, if it's not one of the young guys, if you don't want to sacrifice that young talent, move one of these offensive guys for a defensive guy. Teams would love Monte Morris. Teams would love Gary Harris. And you would be able to pretty easily make a swap for a pure defender. And I would even throw Will Barton into that mix. Gary Harris might be tough to move just because of the contract that he was obviously signed to when he was much more promising. But Barton, even though I love Will the Thrill as much as anybody else, his value as sort of that pick-and-roll creator, it's just not really needed for this team right now when Jokic can single-handedly carry an offense to be top three in basketball as long as you put cutters and shooters around him. So we have to cut ourselves off there. That's enough Nuggets talk for now. We didn't even really get into Murray or Jokic. I think that's a heroic effort on our part, although there will be a little bit more Jokic for a later question. But let's talk now about possibly a team that has a couple of the guys who we just discussed for the last question in Jeremy Grant and Mason Plumlee. No spoilers, but they may come into play for me. Here's the question. Who is the worst team in basketball? So as you mentioned, I did consider the Detroit Pistons. I thought that was a little too easy. I'm going to make a case that the Minnesota Timberwolves have been the worst team in basketball to start off. Uh, they have the worst average scoring margin in the league at negative 10.7. They're 26th in offensive rating and 29th in defensive rating. And here's a number that I think symbolizes Minnesota's offensive struggles this year more than anything. Uh, they forced 26 turnovers on the road against the Hawks a couple of days ago. That's the most forced in a road game since 1996. And they still lost by 11. Now, granted, they were without Carl Anthony Towns. That does matter. But when you play that well defensively, it shouldn't be close. You should be blowing any team out that you force 26 turnovers on. Uh, again, they were without Towns. They were also without Rubio and Hernan Gomez. That does matter, but still, that's embarrassing. Seven of their losses have been by double digits. Four of their losses have been by 18 or more. Uh, they've got a horrendous defense that's 29th in assists allowed, field goals allowed, and defensive rating. Again, I know they've been without talents for eight games this season, but Carson, I honestly don't think 
that Towns returning really changes this team this much. He came back last year. The team didn't really – or no, he the team wasn't good when he was there. He left. I just think right now, I don't know if it's a combination of new players trying to fit in with the system, trying to get these young guys up to speed. I, I know they've got offensive firepower, but when it doesn't show up game to game, they have no defense to even rely on. The Timberwolves are very, very bad right now. And I think part of it is we looked at the individual talent on this roster and said, okay, Malik Beasley, Anthony Edwards, D'Angelo Russell, these guys can get buckets. They don't make each other better at all, though. It's just each of them has their possession where they go one-on-one, and that doesn't drive winning. D'Lo has been average out of the pick-and-roll this year. I think he's 48th percentile, and Anthony Edwards, I love the talent that we're seeing from him, but he's an inefficient rookie right now who doesn't make people around him better, so these guys don't help each other. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly it. None of them want to move the ball in the offense, and that's why it's part of why I love Anthony Edwards and why I hate what he could become. Anthony Edwards has this killer takeover just mindset where he wants to go get a bucket. And I love watching him because it doesn't matter if it's a contested mid-range shot. A He's fearless when he's attacking the rack, when he's taking a shot. And I see that superstar in him where if he becomes good at hitting these tough shots, he's going to be one of the best in the league. But as to winning basketball, you've got three guys that hate moving the ball, that want to play ISO minutes. And yeah, I was fooled. I was duped because talent-wise... They're there. They just don't play together cohesively. So here's where I disagree as far as them being the worst team in the league. I do think that Cat makes them better. Now, they may still be the worst team in the West, but they are 2-2 two and two in games that Cat has played, and he opens up so much for this team. He's far and away their best offensive player and obviously one of the most uniquely gifted players in the league in NBA history on that end of the ball. So I can't just disregard that. I do think it's the Pistons and that's crazy to say because they have beaten the Celtics, Suns, and the injured Heat, but at least still the Heat brand. But I just think when you're looking at this team, when it actually comes to winning, Mason Plumlee is their second most valuable player, and that is a really bad place to be. We've talked about Jeremy Grant's production previously. It's incredibly impressive. I like that he can do it off the ball or creating for himself. He's a different player than we've seen previously. I don't know if 25 a game is sustainable, though. He's been consistent with it up to this point. Even if he does sustain it, it doesn't drive winning, but Blake is just not very good at this point. I don't even know if he's a positive to this team in any way. He takes the ball out of the hands of a Grant or a player who probably would facilitate this offense better. He's not knocking down his shots. He has no real athletic burst at this point. DeLon Wright is not producing as I hoped. It's a lot of Josh Jackson. D. Rose, I think, is insignificant when it comes to winning. So all these things add up. And yes, the Pistons may play together better than a team like the Timberwolves. They may give more effort defensively. All that can be true. But at some point, the talent gap is too great to overcome. And the talent gap between the Pistons and every single other NBA team, I think is still really significant. Yeah, no, I completely agree in that case. I do think, though, Detroit is slightly better defensively than Minnesota. I agree. I just don't think that's enough to overcome the fact that their offense is probably going to regress. And I think that the Timberwolves' offense is not going to remain in the bottom five teams of the league. While we're on the Pistons, though, I do want to give a shout-out to Sadiq Bey. I mean, he is... 3 and D-wise, probably the best pick that Detroit could have made. I know a lot of teams are kicking themselves for not going after him. He is an absolute marksman for Detroit. I agree, and I said at the time that that trade was arguably a win-win-win. Every team that was involved in Brooklyn, the Clippers, and obviously the Pistons maybe got the piece that they needed more than the piece that they had at that point. Okay, so we talked about the Pistons. Let's stick in the Central Division with this one. So obviously the Bucks were praised for being aggressive this offseason for going out and getting Drew Holiday for a moment we thought Bogdan Bogdanovich. 
But sitting at nine and five compared to the last couple seasons when they have absolutely cruised throughout the regular season to their best record in the league, are the Bucks really better than last year? Me personally, I would say no. And the reason I say that is because they stylistically have not changed how they play, which has been the issue in Milwaukee for these past three seasons. Their offense just isn't dynamic enough. They've uh, they were fourth in three-point attempts last season. They're fourth in three-point attempts this season. Now, you could argue that they are a better team because they have drastically improved three-point percentage-wise. They're shooting 40.3% from deep. That's second best in the league. Uh, dramatically better than their ranking last year of 17th in the league at 35.5%. So yes, I-, I will say that you could make that argument that they've been better shooting. They've been dominant. Seven of their 10 wins have been by double digits. But I think this game against the Brooklyn Nets really showed the limitations of Milwaukee when it's going to come down to crunch time. In that fourth quarter, Giannis was an efficient 5 of 6, but he didn't attempt a single 3. Your closer, Chris Middleton, shot 0 of 4 from deep in that last quarter. That changes the tide of that game. And Brooke Lopez also shot 1 of 3 from deep in that fourth quarter. So talent-wise, I do think this is an improved team. Bryn Forbes was an awesome pickup for a team that desperately needing shooting. He's still over 40%, and he's shooting four threes a game. Drew Holiday's a better shooter, defender, and playmaker than Eric Bledsoe. He's shooting better from the field this season, and he's averaging more points per game and steals per game. These additions were nice, but they still didn't address their biggest issues. The fact that they don't have a closer, despite Chris Middleton having you know one good playoff campaign, and they ha- their best player is just either reluctant to shoot threes, or he just can't make them. Giannis has one of the ugliest jump shots In basketball, he still needs to get in the gym and work on that before I think this team can be at their best. So I think that this is still a very good team. I don't want to misconstrue my argument. The Bucs are a really good basketball team, but they are going to fail in the playoffs again if they don't change how they play and how this offense runs. So it sounds to me like you think that they have gotten better, just not better by enough. Is that fair to say? Yes. Then I agree completely. And this is honestly exactly what I expected from this team. But it has been fun to see how swapping out Bledsoe for Holiday does make them better. Because right now, you talked about the 40% three-point shooting. Really, just because of that, they have the best offense in the league right now by offensive rating. Because they do not have a significant player on this roster besides Giannis who can't shoot. Their top nine guys besides Giannis all shoot 35-plus percent from deep. And I think that their second and third biggest stars are playing incredibly well. Middleton is unconscious right now. And... His continued growth as a facilitator is really impressive. He's excelling out of the pick and roll. Holiday is really playing well in his off-ball stretches, shooting 44% from deep on catch-and-shoot situations. So the guys are just playing really well. They are playing with synergy right now. They complement each other. DiVincenzo shooting the hell out of the ball at 44% from deep. I love Augustine and Forbes getting minutes instead of some of the guys who might have been playing last year. I love seeing revitalized Bobby Portis. And I remember... Before the season started, I said, I know that everybody's out on Bobby Portis because he was just a Knicks power forward and what a terrible thing that is. But I still think this dude's gifted offensively. He has length defensively. And he has shown that, particularly on the offensive end. He's averaging 11 and 8 on 55% from the field, 43% from three. So I do think this team is better, but we will forever agree that they are not better by enough. I have given the clutch stats from Middleton and Holiday time and again. I won't do that right now, but neither of them can be a high-level closer, or at least neither of them has shown that they can be, and that will hold this team back. And I think that we've talked about it before, but this formulaic approach does not translate in the playoffs. That being said, even though I may not think that they have fixed everything and they're not my favorite out of the East, I do think that they are better than last year in the most straightforward sense that I just think they are basically a better version of what they already were because they have better personnel. I also think their defense is 12th right now. There's no reason to expect that to continue. They've been the best defense in the league for the most part over the past couple seasons. So if they can turn that around, then 
this team is really, really special as far as regular season success as they have been and as we expected them to be and they presumably will be. Okay, so we agree on the Bucks. Not that much has changed with them, even though maybe their start to the season isn't quite as hot as you would expect from a team that has been so dominant over most of these past couple of regular seasons. Let's move on to a team that has not been nearly as dominant, but a player who has been exceptional. We talked about the Wizards earlier, and we both agreed that they're in pretty dire straits right now, but if there is one bright spot for them, it is Bradley Beal, of course. He is currently leading the league in scoring by far. Will he hold on and win the scoring title when all is said and done? I say yes. I mean, without this offensive move, I said earlier, they're first in pace. They run quick, up-tempo. It's what they did last year, and honestly... Bradley Beal may not be happy with the results. I think that he likes that he can just go out there and huck up shots. And as I say that, him hucking up shots, he's attempting 24 field goals per game right now. And I want to contextualize that. Since 2000, uh, there's only been 10 players who have shot 24 field goals in a game or per game for an entire season. Um, I believe seven of those guys won the scoring title. 2019, James Harden, 06, Kobe, 03, T-Mac, 02, AI, and 01, AI. When you're attempting that many field goals, you're probably going to win the scoring title. Also, some interesting characters on here. 2001, Jerry Stackhouse is putting up 24 field goals a game. So, shout out Stack. I wouldn't put him on Beal's level. But anyway, if Beal continues at this rate, if the Wizards' offense is still running as fast-paced as they are, if he is hucking up 24 shots a game, there is no doubt in my mind that Bradley Beal will win the scoring title. I agree with you. I think that he should be the favorite right now. 34.9 a game at this point. His lowest scoring game. He had 27, and if you take out his 60-point performance, which this early in the season could theoretically cause him to be some sort of outlier, he's still averaging a league-leading 32.1 per game. Over his last 21 games, going back to last season, post-All-Star break, he's averaging 35.7 points per game on 42% from three. Keep in mind, this man was not an All-Star last year, and I will admit was not on my All-Star ballot, I don't think. He was the first guy off. It's just so crazy to think about how much his efficiency improved throughout last season and throughout most of this year as well. But I would say that KD would be his number one contender, but look at how he's going to be competing for touches with. I just don't see a guy who has the combination of a system that is so geared towards his success and really just the talent to do it. I always talk about Devin Booker is the most versatile scoring guard in basketball. Bradley Beal is the second most versatile scoring guard in basketball, I would say. You still hold that sentiment. That Book is number one? Yeah. Here's why. Post play. He's so brilliant out of the post that I don't think that Beal can do that. But as far as just being a pure cutter and obviously creation with the ball in his hands, Beal is exceptional. It's just that one dimension that gives Book the slight edge. It's funny that you bring up Book because if there's anybody that I would compare Beal's play style to when it comes to how this offense runs, like old Devin Booker before he got Chris Paul and how that offense ran through him, that's exactly what Brad Beal is doing, but to a whole nother level. Yeah, he's a machine. He gets to the line. He is obviously just an assassin from deep right now, and he's a joy to watch. He's an electric offensive player. Hopefully, at some point, he can get into a situation where he can actually win basketball games because he has the kind of offensive play style that can lead to winning. He doesn't have to dominate the ball for an entire game. He will beat you as a cutter. He will beat you as a catch-and-shoot guy, and then he can also, in the fourth quarter, bring the ball up every possession and just cook guys in that way. I wonder if the light bulb clicked off in John Wall's head as to why the Wizards were building around Bradley Beal. No, I don't think so. I think that he is still, as reports said at the time, shocked to learn that the Wizards were building around Beal. He's quite the funny character, that John Wall. Okay, so now, Logan, we kind of have the biggest question of this entire show. And I think that this is always an interesting one, but particularly with how ridiculous the talent is league-wide right now, it feels like an appropriate time to tackle this one. So, here's the question. 
Who are the top five players in basketball in your eyes? Start with five. Start with number five. Uh, number five, I think I'm going to have to go with Anthony Davis. I think AD is the best defensive player in basketball, and while that's not going to show up in the stat sheet, he's just he's the most high IQ guy. He moves to the spots where players are going to pull up shots. If you want to pull up a mid-range on him, he's going to clear out. If you want to attack the rack, you're probably not going to score on him. And on top of that, he's improved three-point shooting this year, 36% from behind the arc. He's one of the best cutters in basketball, one of the best pick-and-roll setters. He fits perfectly alongside LeBron, but really, AD's defensive value is what uh, really propels him onto my list and why I think he has to be on everybody's list. I agree completely. I'll get to AD in a second because I have him just a little bit higher. At five, I have Nikola Jokic, who has obviously had the most exceptional season of anyone in basketball this year. And as a guy who picked him to win MVP ahead of last season, what we are seeing right now is what I expected to see from him last year. It is a Jokic who really cares, who is touching the ball in every single possession, who makes everyone around him so much better. The Nuggets have the third best offense in basketball right now. He's averaging 25, 11 and a half, and 10 on 57, 33 and a half, 85 splits. The Nuggets are 14.6 points per 100 better with him on the floor. And I don't know what more Jokic has to do to prove that he's on this level. When you're talking about single-handedly carrying an offense, he is unique as far as probably being the only big man in history who could do this because he can facilitate at such a high level out of the post. He'll find cutters and shooters from every possible angle. If you double him out of the post because he may be the best post scorer in basketball, he's going to kill you that way. And it's just what we've really seen is playoff Jokic, who's averaged 25-11-7 and on 51-42-84 splits, come into the regular season out of necessity as he's in shape, he knows what he has to do for his team to win, and I don't think anybody makes their teammates better more than Jokic does. I don't think anybody makes their jobs easier, and because of that, if he's honestly maybe a top five scorer in basketball as far as just effectiveness, maybe that's a little high, but certainly top 10, and to me, the best playmaker that we have in this sport If you can make everybody around you that much better, that's what makes a truly great offensive player. That's a LeBron. That's a magic. And Jokic is this generation's version of that in a lot of ways alongside, of course, actual LeBron. Okay. Who do you have at number four? At four, I've got Luka. And uh, the first aspect that I like to talk about Luka's game is he can go get a bucket at any point he wants. He's got a deadly... James Harden-like step back is the only one I would compare it to. Now, you would argue he's not shooting well this season. That's because he's forced to just chuck up shots. He's shooting 28.7% from behind the arc. Once he gets up to game speed, once the Mavs get healthy, that's not going to hold. Lucas shooting is still going to be back. But he's so adept at attacking the mid-range with his floaters, with his change of pace. And by way of intimidating these offenses, by making these centers pull up to guard him in that mid-range area, he's opening up passing angles for the corners to the hash spots. And there's no better... There's no better passer in the NBA, in my opinion, than Luka, outside of my number one guy. But Luka's so good at finding passing angles. He's so good at opening up shots for other players. I think outside of a James Harden, maybe a Jokic, if you want to make that debate, nobody makes more shots open for guys other than Luka in this league. I feel like I'm underselling him still a little bit. Like He's got the best feel for the game I've ever seen. He's one of the smartest IQ players I've ever seen. He's genuinely one of the best point guards I've ever watched. Yeah, Luka is obviously an absolute freak, and I think that the fact that when I talk about Jokic single-handedly propelling an offense, this guy took a bunch of rim runners and shooters to be the best offense of all time last season. It cannot be overstated how ridiculous that is, and when he plays to his strengths, when he gets into the lane, when he's drawing fouls, when he's just murdering people with those floaters, there's a case to be made he's the best offensive player in basketball. It's interesting comparing him and Jokic to me as far as best passer goes, because 
Luca can see literally everything. His vision blows my mind. He finds shooters who nobody should be able to see. But when you talk about people making others better within the flow of the game, I just don't think anyone can compare to Jokic. And that's an advantage he has even over a guy like LeBron, for example, in my mind, is Jokic touches the ball for a second and then he moves it on to somebody else. And maybe that's an exaggeration, but Luca and LeBron, you know, maybe they're pounding the ball, they're running pick and roll, they have a couple reads that are clearly defined in their mind. You give Jokic the ball, he knows where everybody on the court is, and he is able to make that pass to whoever possibly gets open. He anticipates rotations the second a guy starts moving. He's already made the pass back to their man as quick as possible. It's just stuff like that that makes Jokic a slightly better offensive player in my eyes. And also, the last thing is, when Jokic is really determined, I think he's an unstoppable scorer. And Luka, although he may more consistently put up incredible scoring numbers, it's a little easier to take him out of his game because guys, really great defenders, can move him off his spots a little bit. They can force him to settle for those step backs a little more. And that's a slight difference. But Luka is very close in my eyes. And I just went on another Jokic tangent somehow. So is who is your number four? So my number four is AD. And the AD Jokic one was a really difficult decision. That was the toughest one that I had on this list. What it really came down to is I thought, okay, if Jokic can single-handedly carry this offense, am I being foolish to put AD above him? Am I giving AD too much credit for being in an incredibly advantageous situation playing with LeBron? And I decided no. And the reason for that is AD is obviously an incredible one-on-one offensive player, and that is a great strength that doesn't compare to what Jokic does. But Although I may think that offense is much more important than defense, when AD is maybe, as you said, the best defensive player in basketball, the Lakers have the best defense in basketball, obviously largely because of him and his versatility, his imposing rim protection. I can't just ignore all of that when also offensively, he is so skilled and has really gotten better there. He's shooting 44% on jumpers this year, 36% from three. That's significantly better than past seasons. And I talked about how during his playoff stretch, he was shooting 50% on jumpers, and that's why it was the best basketball he's ever played, and I wondered if that was fluky. I don't think it's fluky. I think he's really that improved there. So you pair that with the fact that he's the greatest lob threat of all time. He's obviously an elite role man. He can handle. He can facilitate. I think he's a little too much to pass up because he has such incredible offensive value, and then maybe the most defensive value in basketball, whereas Jokic has more offensive value, significantly more maybe even, but not quite enough to make up, I think, for the defensive deficit, although it's very, very close. So basically what you said, that big tangent about Jokic, yeah, like put that in right here because Jokic is number three for me. And I think even an aspect that you didn't touch on, Carson, here, I'm going to throw out a few numbers before I get into this. Jokic is the only center in the history of the NBA to lead the league in assists. I know we're just getting started to the season. No one's ever done it. He's also the only center to have averaged a triple-double. What he's doing right now is unconscious, and the Nuggets are over nine points per 100 possessions better with Jokic on the floor, the highest mark in the league. But as stylistically as to how Jokic plays, Jokic is the only center in the league, and I think positionally is why he's so successful at this. When he starts the offense and he just gives a little pass to Murray and sets a screen, the center is forced to make a decision right there in that moment. Do I sprint out to Jokic and do I contest this three or do I roll to the rim to protect it? And in that moment, if you hesitate for a second, I know Jokic doesn't have a very quick release, but it doesn't matter. He will let that in your mouth because it just doesn't. He'll look you right in the face and go, all right, buddy, I'm going to pull this. And if you are not cleared out, if you are not hands in his face, Jokic is going to hit that. Whereas Carson likes to say uh, he was at least online. Jokic is basically unguardable. Like, I don't think there's a player, even you put AD on him, you can put anybody on him. I don't think you can guard Jokic. And that's why he's higher than a guy like AD for me. He is, 
in my eyes, the best offensive player in basketball this season. Better than LeBron James. Okay, I'm going to back up. LeBron is still one, Jokic is two. Jokic, and I totally understand that. He is certainly in the top three in my eyes. And I really, really thought about having him four. And I could not for a second criticize you having him at three. So I'm interested because this means one of my top three guys you will not have. And I have a feeling it's the guy who I have at three. Which, fascinatingly, if that's a word, is actually maybe the guy who I was most uncertain about having in this spot. I have Kawhi at three. And the reason for that is... I would say, when it matters, he is the second best scorer in basketball. I think that he is the definition of unstoppable as far as being an elite closer, guy who effortlessly gets to his spots. He's just killing people on 49, 43, 88 splits this year. He's 94th percentile out of the pick and roll and obviously is still an elite perimeter defender. The difference between him and Jokic that favors Jokic is obviously what I've touched on so much, the elevation of teammates that really matters. And I will say... One-on-one wing defense only matters so much, and that's a big advantage of Kawhi's, but it's not like he drives team defense to being elite. So this was really close, but I do still think in spite of what we saw where Kawhi finally came up short in game seven last year, this dude can drive winning, and in the biggest spots, I would take him over everybody who I have him above on this list. And I think that also his playmaking, it doesn't come incredibly naturally to him, but it is an area in which he's gotten so much better. And last year, I thought it was maybe a little bit overplayed. I thought that really he was just passing out of doubles more, not taking as many Kobe-like shots as he has throughout much of his career. But he does really anticipate rotations better. He's willing to swing the ball. And he sees stuff he didn't used to. And if you told me a couple years ago, Kawhi would average six assists a game for a season, I would be pretty surprised by that. So I don't feel great about this one because the gravity is not as great as Jokic, but There is that will-to-win factor, that deadly closer, that assassin, that guy who will get you a stop on the other end, and all of that to me is just still a little bit too much to pass up for Kawhi, so I had to have him here somewhere, and I ended up settling on three. I also, I talked about Jokic there. I think AD, it's tough to really settle between these two as well because they're also really close, but I just think it's the closing, the single-handedly winning a game that puts him a little bit over AD in my mind as well. So let's get get into the top two then. I assume we'll have the same guys. Who's second for you? So I do want to say first off about the Kawhi thing. I did have Kawhi in my top five, and then I realized I didn't have KD in my top five. I have to. Kawhi's defensive value that he brings to the table is really high, but just I did my top five more on how they've started this regular season. I think playoffs, you can certainly make a case for Kawhi. He's an ultimate winner. Kawhi's probably six on my list. As for two, though, it's KD. KD has been unreal this season. I'd have never seen anyone, maybe Neek, if you're going to say anybody, come off of an injury like that and still be at the peak of their powers. Most guys, most everyone loses something. KD doesn't look like he's lost a step, and I guess that's just because he's seven foot and can shoot any you know shot over anyone in the league. Harden, uh, the addition to this offense has opened up so much more for KD as a spot-up shooter. He's, he's deadly in that role, but he does so much more. Like, he's so long at getting to the rack, one crossover move, and you are completely out of position because of how long he is. He takes one dribble, two steps, he's at the rack. What KD brings offensively, I think, I say Jokic is the second-best player, offensive player in basketball, and KD might be second. Those, I think there's a clear three offensively. I think it's Braun, KD, and Jokic, and you can put them in any order they want in, that you want, but... Uh, KD has to be here. He's still a deadly shooter. He's still deadly at getting to the rack. And uh, he's still seeing passing angles as well. KD's just the complete combination. Yeah, I agree with you as far as that top three offensively. 
I do feel like I want to clarify what constitutes top five players for me because we kind of just went into this list and maybe some people's interpretations vary. The only thing I care about is winning a championship. That is the only thing that matters to me. And I have KD number two in that respect as well. I think that he is the epitome of offensive versatility as far as doing it on and off the ball. You gave his numbers, the efficiency, 54, 48, 87 splits. It is as effortless as it's ever been. And when I watch him, I still think that guy is completely and totally unstoppable. He's attempting the most free throws he has in seven years, which I think reflects his aggression getting downhill. And you touched on it at the very end. I really do feel like his unselfishness and his playmaking is underappreciated. It's been special here in Brooklyn, and he is really adapted to the system and understanding the shooters that he has around him, getting them the ball in the right spots, anticipating those reads. He's been nothing short of spectacular. And if he's not 100%, then he's the closest thing to it. He is still the most unique scoring talent we've had in basketball history, and that has not gone away. No, you're exactly right. His playmaking is accentuated by all the shooting talent that Brooklyn surrounded him with. I mean, uh, Kuroks is shooting well from deep. Uh, Jeff Green has surprisingly been hot from deep. Joe Harris is still one of the best three-point shooters in the league. I mean, this is, I can't think of a better offense to have around KD. Okay. So let's get in now to number one, the top dog. I assume we will agree. Who do you have? I have LeBron. I mean, I still don't think it's a. I still don't think it's a bait, a debate. I think LeBron's been the best player in basketball for the past decade, maybe more. It, this isn't going to change until a dramatic fall off from LeBron happens. At any given point, LeBron can go out there and get you a bucket just because he's that strong. He attacks the rim well. He's still is the best playmaker in basketball. He's still got the best playmaking vision. He's a smart defender. I, LeBron is the second greatest player of all time. He has not had a dramatic fall off. It's he's going to be the best player in basketball uh, until something may, until something drastic changes. Yeah, and what's interesting about LeBron this year, who I have at number one as well, is that he's barely given full effort for a single regular season game this season. Like you look at his production, and it's twenty four eight and seven and a half. That's great, but he's fully coasting. Maybe as much in just autopilot as I can remember him being, but that doesn't take away from what we saw just a couple months ago when the dude averaged 28, 11, and 9 over a playoff run on 56% from the field, 37% from three. That should speak for itself. It's the development we've talked about before where now he is an assassin as that off the dribble jump shooter where he can be that closer and he's still maybe the best passer in basketball, certainly top three. He can propel an offense to be elite single-handedly. He can play great defense when he needs to. I just don't think that there really needs to be that more said. He's the most complete player in basketball in that respect. Okay, so there is the top five. I do feel like before we move on, we have to address that there is one glaring omission from both of our lists. So I think a lot of people would expect to be on there. The back-to-back MVP, of course, in Giannis Antetokounmpo. This is not, to me, some radical stance from where I've had him previously, but why don't you talk a little bit about why you don't have Giannis on this list? Well, it's predicated on what you said of what our top five is, to win a championship. And right now, this goes back to my complaint about the Bucs earlier, is when the playoffs happen, you need to have a guy who can hit big, tough shots and Giannis just isn't that guy. Yes, he is good game to game. He's one of the best defenders in basketball. I think he changes the game completely on that end. But offensively, all of these guys are better than Giannis. I would take all of them in a heartbeat over Giannis to win a title because that's the ultimate goal. I just don't think Giannis drives winning in the playoffs nearly as much as any of these other guys. Yeah, our thinking is similar, so I agree, of course, the goal is to win a championship, and I do want to reiterate, this is not some reactive thing to me where, oh, the Bucks couldn't get it done. I did a list of this 
kind in last April, and I had Giannis fifth. So he has moved down one spot on my list because I think what Jokic is doing right now is undeniable. And when I talk about my top five, every single guy there can single-handedly carry an offense to being elite if it's a LeBron or a Jokic who have that kind of gravity and making their teammates better or can be a really high-level closer, which I think applies to every player on my list, arguably AD, maybe not at that elite level, but he still can do it in stretches, or can do both. And I think that if we look at the playoffs from last year, Giannis was 24th in fourth quarter scoring. Jokic was 12th. Kawhi was 9th. LeBron was 7th. AD was 26th. And this is where I wonder, even though I had AD 4 above Jokic at 5, Am I giving AD too much credit because he's in a great situation? I touched on this earlier. I don't think so because AD's defense obviously drives winning more. A truly elite rim protector is so much more important than a great one-on-one wing defender. And he has more capacity to be a closer at a high level. As I mentioned, shooting 44% on jump shots. He can be an assassin from that range as well. And his offensive game just translates better. He's not as dependent on those transition opportunities. He's not completely taken out of the game in the last few minutes in the way that Giannis can be. And his postseason production has increased every single time he's been there, whereas Giannis's has declined every single time he's been there. This is not a foolish statement, in my opinion. The maybe best regular season offensive player, which I think, or just best player, which I think you can argue Giannis is, is not close to the best play- playoff player right now. And there can be a situation in which Giannis is alongside a brilliant shot maker off the dribble, a kind of guy who can be your offensive closer and driving offensive engine in the playoffs, and that's all great. And when that happens, he will be completely essential to winning a title and absolutely special, but we're not in that situation right now. And I think too much needs to be put around him compared to everyone else that I can't have him on this list. And again, maybe you could argue AD is in that same tier, but I think I've already touched on where I think AD separates himself just a little bit. So doesn't mean that Giannis isn't incredible, but he doesn't quite compare on my list. Okay. So that was the big one. That took up a good chunk of time there, but I also think it was really fun. And it just speaks to how ridiculous the talent in the league is right now. Some guys who we didn't mention, Steph Curry, James Harden, Damian Lillard, even. I mean, these are ridiculous all-time offensive talents who we did not even get to mention because the talent is just that absurd right now. Last one here might be a little bit quicker. Let's look at this rookie class, which has been interesting up to this point. Which team do you think should be most happy? And then which team do you think should be most disappointed with their first round pick? Let's start positive. Who should be happiest? Well, first, I think I'm going to mention an honorable mention here, and I'm going to go with Tyrese Maxey. He's a tremendous off-the-dribble shooter. I think he's exactly what Philadelphia needs for late in games with a point guard like Ben Simmons who can't go out there and get you a late bucket. Tyrese is going to be big in the playoffs for the 76ers. I'm 100% sure of it. But the guy I'm going to go with, uh, the team I'm going to go with, excuse me, is the Boston Celtics. And I think they have got to be ecstatic with their pickup of Peyton Pritchard. I mean, offensively, this kid is... He's what I expected Malachi Flynn to be for the Raptors. He's a great playmaker. He's a great finisher at the rack. Like, he's not exceptionally fast, but when he does get around his defenders, he's crafty enough to finish at the rack. He's a great shooter. He's he's just another scorer for this deep Boston Celtics team and exactly what they needed. Um, it's funnily enough, though, Carson, I am going to go with the Celtics for my negative take as well, but I'll get into that in a minute. Pritchard has been fantastic. He has been absolutely one of the bright spots of this rookie class and a guy who I think was drafted higher than some people anticipated going in the first round and has absolutely lived up and maybe even surpassed that value. I'm going to stick in the Atlantic for my choice. It's actually your honorable mention, your honorable mention, Tyrese Maxey. I was exhilarated for the Sixers when they got him at 21st in the draft. I thought that that was way too low. And 
When I look at Tyrese Maxey's scoring game, it's the definition of tough to me in the sense of when somebody says that's tough, they might as well be talking about every single move that Tyrese Maxey takes. It's the handle, it's the floater game, and I just want to say my first honorable mention actually, and I have Pritchard on that list as well, would be Emmanuel Quickly, who's been fantastic for the Knicks and such, such great pace out of the pick and roll, great change of pace, but it's the floater game. These two dudes just throw those up there and they fall so much. Whatever they are doing at Kentucky... Every NBA team needs to take a hard look at it, not just for the floater development program, which I think they should invest in, but if there's a Kentucky guard, I'm getting to the point of saying, just draft that guy because the track record is so ridiculous at this point, but he's 65th percentile out of the pick and roll. That is pretty good for a rookie. There are some areas for improvement. He's 28% from three on under three attempts per game right now. That's not good enough. He should be a better shooter than that. And his playmaking, he's still really a score first guy. Sometimes he'll get doubled and he won't look to make that read. He doesn't have incredible vision or anything, but as a bucket, as the kind of guy who can impact the game defensively, he's been fantastic. I think he's been a huge win for the Sixers. So you said you have another Celtic as your disappointing guy. I am pretty confident I know who it is, but why don't you talk about it? It's Aaron Neesmith. And the reason the Boston Celtics took Neesmith at 14 was to take some pressure off of Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum for the second unit. Well, Neesmith hasn't done that at all. And when there were other options available, uh, like Sadiq Bey even, who could at least defend and who was hitting his three-point shots this season. Tyrese Maxey even, who, no, he's not a traditional three. He's a guard, but you wanted some more shooting and some more playmaking. Well, guess what? Maxey did that. Even worse, Carson, the guy that they drafted with the 30th pick and traded to Memphis, Desmond Bain is a beast. I love watching him play. He's a great defender. He's, he's clear, he, uh, excuse me, he closes out on rotations. He closes out on shooters. He's a great spot-up guy. He can handle the rock a little bit. He's just a great do-it-all guy, which is similar to the role that they wanted Neesmith in. Neesmith has basically been unplayable to this point in the season. When there were other guys on board who you could have taken at that 14 spot, who you could have just kept your 30th pick and taken Bain and traded that 14th pick away for way more value, the Celtics just, it looks like they blew it. Now, I'm not completely out on Neesmith, but when you, need, when you are a, a shooter purely, and supposed to potentially be more when you're shooting like 20% out of the gate, you're kind of a bust. Yeah, I've been very disappointed with Neesmith up to this point. I thought that he could contribute immediately because of his pure skill set as a shooter. And he was one of the guys who I really liked in this draft. He's 19% from deep right now. He has been unplayable. He's only gotten on the court in five games. I think he's made some nice defensive plays. He's had a couple of impressive shots. So he would be my second guy. My first guy, though, actually, will be another Atlantic Division player. So an eventful draft for those teams. I have Obi Toppin right now, and this is an interesting one because he was my pick for Rookie of the Year, and that is certainly what plays into this. It's expectations. Obviously, injuries have limited him a little bit, but when he has been out there, he's giving you five a game on 36% from the field, 12 minutes per game, and I think that what he does off the ball is really exciting. He can be that lob threat. He's a guy who gets into space really well, but... Obviously, you were just expecting more than five a game. So it's not even that I think that Obi is doomed in this league. I think that he'll find success on the offensive end probably soon enough. But up to this point, relative to the expectations, that's disappointing. Maybe I was just trying to avoid saying Neesmith because I liked him so much in the draft. He might be the better candidate because he's unplayable at this point, And I think that Obi is probably going to turn it around. But I think Neesmith will turn it around too. And I actually... Really, no one stands out insanely in this category to me. I think that Every guy in this draft who's even been disappointing up to this point could turn it around, and I'm not out on any of them necessarily. So as for your OB take, do you think that has more to do with him ability-wise or just how this Knicks offense has been running through Julius Randle? 
I think that's probably part of it. It's a tough fit for him. And I think that he just hasn't gotten the touches. He hasn't gotten the minutes. All of that is true. He hasn't been overwhelmingly efficient when he has gotten the touches, but I think he'll work things out. It's just up to this point with the way that his success was expected. It's been a little disappointing. Anyone else who stands out to you in this category? Yeah, the last guy I would mention is Killian Hayes. Uh, he's played in seven games this season, and it's just not what I expected. I had It goes back to the expectation thing that you said about Obi Toppin. I had such high expectations immediately for Killian Hayes, such a good pick-and-roll runner, such a good finisher at the rack just with his left hand, but uh, the game just seems to be moving a little too fast for him. The Pistons should be starting Derrick Rose. He is a much better option for them now. Hayes should not be out there starting. Um, it's just been disappointing because I expected him to come out here and take over the league immediately. Maybe my expectations were a little too high for the 19-year-old. Again, I'm not out on the kid. I think he's still going to be a tremendous player. I'm just disappointed at how the start has been. Yeah, he's been bad, and I don't know when he'll even be back out on the court because he has suffered a labral tail. Oh, that's not how you say it. A labral tear a little bit ago. I really don't even know what that means as far as how long he'll be out, but you're right. The game just looked a little too fast for him, and I think that when you're coming up from the German league to this, I think that that shows, and I do think his facilitating translated, but as a scorer, he just wasn't at the level that you wanted to see, but I still have faith in him, and like I said, I'm holding out hope with really all of these guys. So, that will do it for us here today. We'll be coming out with an NFL show on Friday in which we preview the upcoming conference championship games. You can check out our trivia time from earlier this week. You can always follow us on Twitter at nerd underscore sesh or on Instagram at nerd sesh. But that will do it for us here today. I've been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. Nerd Sesh.